There is a word that many people get confused about, and it's the word salvation. I want to put up a definition. This is from a Bible dictionary. I call it reads. This word is used of the deliverance of the Israelites from the Egyptians, from Exodus there, and of the deliverance generally from evil or danger. In the New Testament, it's specially used with reference to the great deliverance from guilt and pollution of sin wrought out by Jesus Christ. The great salvation reference in Hebrews chapter 2. Now you might look at me and say, Ken, what's the problem? People don't struggle with this word. Well, let me put a a stat on the screen here that actually points to this. 77%. Maybe I don't have, do I have that, Jim? Okay, I'll read it for you here. 77% of all Americans believe that personal salvation is a result of good works. Almost 8 out of 10 people Believe salvation is determined by your good works. Functionally, it's this. People believe this. If I can do just enough good things in this world and stay away from some bad stuff, if I can tip the scales toward the good enough meter, then I'm good to go, especially when death comes calling. And it's because of that belief we got to catch this, that many people believe that there's multiple paths to God. Those two are connected. I can work my way to heaven. That's why so many people believe that any way goes toward God. It doesn't really matter what religion you have. Uh, The text today is really in sharp contrast to that statistic. If you're a guest today, I do want to welcome you as well. My name's Ken, and we're we're glad that you're here today with us. We've been working our way through the book of Colossians, and we've titled this series Above All, and functionally what it's about is this. We want to become a church where we, above all else, our lives are centered on Jesus corporately and individually. We want Jesus to be above all in our lives. So you got your Bibles. Turn to Colossians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to continue on. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9 here today. Um, we're kind of going to jump over a couple of verses, but look how it reads in, in beginning in verse 9. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead." Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over uh, them in him. 
Now today, again, I'm going to jump over a couple of verses here, but just kind of a summary of the first few verses. God lives in Christ fully through this, his life on this earth. Jesus was fully God. But Paul also tells them, you belong to Christ because you've been spiritually circumcised. Now, what does that mean? It was a symbolic understanding in the Old Testament of the nature of the covenant, of the promise that you are going to be my people. See, there's this relational connection in that word even. But now, church, the church at Colossae, you have a life and you are God's people because of your faith in God's power and in his triumph at the cross. But this morning, here's where we want to dig in verse 13. And frankly, it's a little bit weightier of doctrine, but doctrine, I think that is very, very important. Now, first, let me go down an alley here, just on the issue of doctrine. Realize something. Good doctrine always has an end goal of pointing people toward Jesus. So there's kind of a warning, I think, or kind of an admonition that we need to wrestle with as we read books, as we go to the internet and listen to podcasts. And I do that. I I read a lot and I listen a lot. But we need to be careful and put a lens on, is the teaching that we're listening to pointing and helping people move toward Christ and the cross? And if it's not, in one sense, it can begin to fall into that category of doing enough good works to merit salvation. Let me keep going here. I want to put up a phrase, actually from verse 13. Notice the way it's written here. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses, you who were dead. Now he's talking to them that they were once dead and now they're alive in Christ. Now realize again, I think we all, most of us understand it, that wasn't physical death, that was spiritual death. They were once spiritually dead and are now alive, he writes to them. But there is a truth here that many people really, I think, even fail to grapple with here. And too often we, we've, we don't look at this truth through a lens as we look at the world, as we look at people around us, as we look at our families. If you're following along in the outline that I had in the bulletin, that first point, here's the reality. Realize that salvation is binary, meaning this, people are either spiritually dead or spiritually alive. There are two groups of people in this world. People that are in Christ and have salvation and those that are not in Christ, or we could say not yet there, but they are spiritually dead. You know, I was studying this passage one evening this week and, and uh, I put it down and I started watching a basketball game and uh, what struck me, I was watching these guys running around on the floor and dribbling and shooting. And I suspect that there were a couple of those guys that had put their faith in Christ and were more than likely followers of Christ. Maybe not a lot of them, but a couple, a few of them. But as I was thinking of this text, the recognition that the rest of them, 
were running, dribbling, jumping as dead men, spiritually speaking. They're not alive in Christ. I want to put a picture here for this morning. I want to use a word. You notice the title of the sermon here. There's a genre of movies out there. Zombie movies. I I found this picture here. Um, This is Quentin's favorite zombie. (laughs) Redneck zombies uh, is what, this is his favorite one, I think. Wasn't that right, Quentin? Right, Right. see? (laughs) Exactly. Um, I I don't know if you know this, but I was looking at how, how many zombie movies are actually out there. So I went on Wikipedia. 488, they had zombie movies listed. In a title, on the titles of there. But here's the hard truth when we connect it to the idea of zombies. If people aren't in Christ, if there's no bond with Christ, they are spiritual zombies. Now, we don't like that reality because we don't like to picture people in that light, but they are spiritually dead. See, we look at them, we look at the world, and we go, they're nice people. And they are nice people. Matter of fact, many of them are nicer than some Christians that I know. But being nice doesn't mean that they're right with God, that salvation has occurred. I want to show you another passage again that reiterates this binary concept here. Look at Ephesians 4.18. They are darkened. Those that are not in Christ, it's describing those. They are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from a life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. See, other scriptures even use the word blind or blindness. Uh, some passages used talk about a veil over their hearts. Do we catch this either or in terms of people? But, but here's the challenge. I don't think we really like talking about this stuff. And I don't think we really like to put that lens as we look at people and go, they might be spiritual zombies. Let me keep going. Look at the end of verse 14. Put 14 up there. Paul is telling them. Now this is an aspect again of his mission here we'll find in this text. So God made us alive in 13. But then 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. Paul is connecting the dots of sin. And all of the consequences of sin with salvation here in this passage. He's saying all people have a debt because of that sin that they commit. Now, you notice the phrase legal demands there. I I suspect, and most people believe, it's going back even to the the, the law and and specifically the Ten Commandments. Uh, To throw out a question here. How many of us have fully kept every one of those Ten Commandments? Anybody want to admit to that? If you raise your hand, you're probably Jesus. There is a debt. This text is talking about a debt. 
For every sin that we commit, every wrong attitude, every inconsequential sin, a debt is owed. Folks, every small independent act before God adds to the debt. Yes, every big sin, but the little and the big sins all add to the debt of our trespasses and sins. But this passage tells us that when one is in Christ, this sin debt has been set aside. The debt has been canceled. I want to illustrate this again with a picture. Many of you know this, what this is. I was going to try to go live, but it just kind of bogs down the computer here. Um, this is a, a website, usdebt.org, I think it is. And this is a site that records how the United States is going further and further in debt. It's an interesting thing to look at. It just keeps clicking away, and it's just the amount of money, the trillions of dollars, is just being oh, on and on and on. You know, and, and we think that we can keep borrowing money as a country, um, and it's, eventually it's going to catch up with us. And for you that are in your 50s, you know, I'm going to sign up for Medicare one of these days real shortly. And for you in the 50s, good luck, okay? Um, you may not have it there um, if the debt clock keeps ticking there. But here's the reality. That debt clock is like our sin in the spiritual world. Every sin is recorded on that debt clock. And it keeps going up and up and up. Every little sin is adding to the weight of a person's debt for every person who is not in Christ. Now, realize something. When people are not in Christ, when they're spiritual zombies, maybe to use that term, they don't care about the debt. They don't care that the clock is ticking and just adding to the weight of their debt that's owed. They just move on to the next fun thing, put a smile on their faces, and keep believing as long as I don't do the really big sins, I'm good to go. If I do just enough good stuff to weigh it, I'm good. And yet the clock is ticking, ticking, ticking. Folks, the reality of our sin is that we were born in independence, born independent. And we love our autonomy. And we don't have a problem turning our back against God. We grew up worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, as Roman 1 speaks. Folks, the sin of independence and autonomy is what the spiritual dead person wants. They want it. And without Christ... People hold on to the right of defining what is the right path to salvation. And people hold on to defining what is good and what is evil. I think of the abortion debate thing being stirred up by the laws that are being passed here. 
We define the right to decide when life begins and when you can take it when it's okay. The people are trapped there. They, they like that autonomy. So our friends, our neighbors, even our family members, even the really nice ones, if they are not in Christ, the debt is still there and the debt is continuing to climb. And yet, they're generous, they're civil, they're really nice. Tick, tick, tick. Now, Paul uses the word debt here intentionally with them. Why? Because Paul understands that every sin requires a payment to atone for that sin. That's a debt. Every debt requires payment. When we're in debt, we got to pay it back. But every debt spiritually requires a payment toward God. Remember in the Old Testament, why did they bring sacrifices? To satisfy, in one sense, the, the debt. To put it aside till Christ came. But look at verse 13 here. How God's salvation plan was to deal with the debt. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Again, they had this debt. It was really impossible to pay back to God. But look how it goes. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In Christ, our debt hung on that cross. Now, there's a question I think that we have to wrestle with with, with this issue. Why was it that Christ had to pay the debt? Why was he having the one to do it? Why didn't God just say, I forgive your debt? Mankind, I forgive you. Why didn't he say nothing more is owed? Debt meter, stop. Why didn't God do that? Wouldn't it have been easier for him to say, live and let live? So, in essence, why did Jesus have to die? See, in communicating salvation toward people, you understand, we need to understand how people think. See, people assume something about God. We have to realize they assume something about God, and it's this. God will overlook all the little sins. That's what people assume. They're not that bad. So why did Jesus, though, have to come? And why did he have to be the one to cancel out the debt? And one piece to that is this in God's plan. Justice had to take place. Now that's the short answer. 
See, in his plan, being God, he laid down the rules. He created the economy, the spiritual economy, and the rule was put in place is that if you sin, penalty must be paid. Remember back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. If you sin, a penalty will be assessed, and the penalty was death. Physical and spiritual death. See, God did not take out a piece of paper and say, let bygones be bygones. And that's what people want to think. Did you notice how it was forgiven? He nailed that debt on the cross through his death. He was the payment. He paid it back. He took the consequences. And if we are in Christ, he placed it, the debt that we owe, on himself And he took it to the cross. Now, ponder something with me as well. And let me make a statement. If there was never any consequences for sin, if he wouldn't have told Adam and Eve, you sin, you die, understand at that moment he ceases to be God and he's not in control of his creation. And he would not be holy, and he would not be just. He would not be just. See, God said in his economy, justice has to be served. But listen to this. When it comes to salvation, people want forgiveness without justice. They don't want consequences of their sin. It's the way we think. A side note here. I just, I just got to make this statement. In this issue of forgiveness here, I got to point something out. Because Christ forgave us. You understand? That's where, where, where forgiveness comes to, into play. And he took the consequences when he forgave us he took the weight on himself. And, and a, a point here, when we forgive others, you understand, one of the things that happens, someday I need to preach on forgiveness and go deeper here, but just one statement. When we forgive others, we are letting go of the demand for justice. For justice. But we're not consistent See, we like to make the rules up ourselves. And and let me give you an example. When really bad stuff happens, intuitively, we know justice is right. Matter of fact, you know, if I got a call this morning and, and one of my kids called me and said, Dad, one of your grandchildren just got shot by somebody. I would be at the front of the line demanding justice. And I think you would too. But here's the deal. God is the one who deals with justice, not us. Not us. See, I got to give another 
critical aspect here. Let me put it on the, on the screen another piece as to why Jesus had to come and he had to hang on that cross and he had to be the one that paid for our debt. Number two in your notes, I said it this way, Christ's death and canceling our debt on the cross was needed to show the depth of his love. The justice of God is not disconnected from the love of God. They are intrinsically tied together. Matter of fact, let me show you another verse here from John 15 that points where it connects death and love. And it's this, greater love is no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did for us. The death of Jesus, his broken body, his shed blood, nailed to the cross, became the payment to a just and righteous God. And it shows how much he loves this world. Folks, the love of the Father was demonstrated to the world where he sends his son to die to pay our debt. It should have been on us. See, to truly understand that word salvation, we need to understand the depth of our own sinfulness and really what that's all about. You know, it, it said no one can really understand grace without understanding sin, and that really is true. We must come to grips with the depth of our sin and our selfishness and our rebellion against God. But because of his love, Everyone who is in Christ can stand up and say, Jesus, you paid my debt for my sinfulness because the Father loved me. See, that was the day that Jesus stopped that ticking, that, that debt counter. When we became in Christ, that counter stopped. Let me keep going. Look at verse 13. Because there's another blessing here. Look at verse 13. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Number three for your notes. I got to remind you of this. God canceled the debt so that he could give us a new spiritual life. His work, stopping the debt ticker, all past debt, all present debt, all future debt. If we are in Christ, it's gone, but he has given us new life as well. See, God wanted more than just zombies. He wanted to bring real spiritual life to the hearts of people and realize only, hear this, only a... A person who's spiritually alive can fully embrace the love of God. Folks, spiritual zombies and those who are not in Christ will not understand the love of God. They will not relish it. They're dead. They're zombies. So he had to make us alive to actually embrace the love that he has for us and the Son See, do we appreciate what he's done? He has made us alive. 
which is more than just saying you're pardoned. We got to catch that. Some people think, well, he paid my debt and therefore I can walk out of the jail and now I'm free. And I go, it's much more than that. He gave you new life, new spiritual life. You were once dead and now you are alive. See, this actually points to a a conversation that Jesus had. I want to put it on the screen from John chapter 3. Look at verse 5. He's talking to Nicodemus here. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of the Israel and yet you do not understand these things? So uh, here's the importance going back to that word salvation. When does salvation really occur? I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about that. And it's this, when the Spirit of God rebirths a person, that born again word there is literally the word rebirthing. The Spirit came along and rebirthed and started a new life. Does this happen to everyone that exists in this world? No. But even this text points out that people are still blinded by their own sin and self-love. Nicodemus was spiritually blind at this point. He was a zombie. He didn't get it. And Jesus was in front of him. See, people don't automatically have blindness lifted from their hearts just because someone talks about sin and even salvation. Or even that they intellectually might grasp it. See, the truth is, we have a world full of people who don't believe or understand they need to be reborn. They keep believing they've done enough good things to tip the meter toward them good to go. And Jesus said, no, salvation comes when we are reborn by the Spirit of God. And Nicodemus didn't get it, and he knew the Scriptures. He knew the prophecy. See, even that tells us that one can know the Bible and still be blinded. One can go, go to church and still be dead. Folks, it's clear that God is the one that makes us alive, and the Spirit has to be infused into us. And that's when life begins in the spiritual realm. Yet, do we have to cooperate? Yes, by faith. But look at John chapter 5 and the implications for our children, our friends, our family. Look at 539. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You know, parents with our children, you can send them to church, you can have them study the Bible, you can have them memorize verses. It's no guarantee that salvation occurred. And we ultimately are not responsible for their salvation. We just give the gospel to them. See, uh, parents, so often, well, the word of God's not going to return void. Folks, that's out of context. It's not talking about salvation. 
our children, our family, our friends, they must have a conviction about their sin and the debt that they owe. And that conviction is started by the Holy Spirit and he opens a door up where they begin to see, I need a savior. And yes, they must respond in faith and believe that Jesus is the one that died for them and he nailed their debt on the cross. Now, parents, please don't hear me say that church doesn't matter. It does. There's no better setting for the Holy Spirit to work. They need to hear the Bible being taught. It's the gospel. The Spirit has to use the scriptures. But how can they believe without hearing the gospel? It's why prophecy tells us that we still need to grow to a whole bunch more people groups. They need to have the gospel in their language and they need to understand. So they may believe. So parents, don't default to poor parenting and ignore the reality that our children need truth even before they're born again. Listen, poor parenting ignores the reality of community and of other adults and how God uses people to help that process of becoming born again. But let me get back on topic here. If you're in Christ... It's because God made you alive in Christ. And it's with it, he put in new desires. We knew have a new capacity to respond. I told somebody this the other day. There's more free will after salvation than before. We actually have the freedom to begin to pursue a love relationship with Jesus. Zombies cannot do that. Cannot do that. But making us alive is not a moral reformation. It doesn't turn off the sin faucet. Making us alive doesn't mean that our bad habits automatically go away and are replaced by good ones. Discipleship there is crucial. That's why we focus on discipleship. It's learning to walk toward Jesus. Learning to help others walk toward Jesus. I need to end here. You probably noticed that I didn't have a point for verse 15, and I was just going to ignore it, but I I will say this. I I believe that verse 15 really is about the reality in the demonic realm. And recognize something. We battle a defeated foe in Satan. I, I think we give him much too much credit at times, but we are in a war where the outcome has already been decided He has actually been humiliated already with the resurrection of Christ. So we don't have to fear Satan and his army. But let me end it this way. Have you been born again? Has God made you alive? Is the spirit right now, or is the spirit right now maybe convicting your heart? And say, I don't know if I'm born again. If I have had that saving work done in my heart where there's new life. And if you're in doubt, I would welcome a conversation with you. Talk to Doug or one of the elders or even the worship team. We would like to help you and explain that even more. 
what it means to put your faith in the one that loves you so deeply. But for how about for us? He's made us alive. He's put a new heart in us. Do we just sit around and go, oh, thank you, Jesus, and now get on with our lives? Is that the response? Uh, let me give you the question in the notes. I said this. What should our response be when we move from being spiritually dead to having given spiritual life? And the answer to that is worship. Worship. Now, I'm not talking about music here. Worship is much broader than just music. Worship is about bowing our lives before the one that saved us. It's about a spirit of thankfulness. It's about giving of our lives so that the kingdom of God can be advanced. It's about worship that leads to loving him with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and will, and loving our neighbors so that they might see Jesus. It's about producing disciples helping others. It's about getting off the sideline and getting in the game what God wants to do through churches and into the kingdom and working within the kingdom of God. It's not just walking in this world. If he's made us alive, our identity needs to start going in Jesus. What does Jesus want us to do? I'm going to ask the elders to come forward. It's interesting that this passage of debt and sin is on Communion Sunday. And it's so fitting in one sense for us to respond and give thanks that he took our sin and that he's made us alive. So I would say this, if you are alive in Christ Know this, you are welcome for communion today. And would you just worship him? Would you hold the bread? Guys, go ahead and hand out that bread. But would you just hold it and bow before him and thank the Father that he sent the Son, that the Son took our debt and nailed it to the cross. And if he wouldn't have done that, justice was still in place and you understand we would be responsible for the debt and there would be no hope but because of Jesus we have 